Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer at How Stuff Works, and I love all things tech, and it's time for another classic episode of Tech Stuff. And recently, I did an enormous series about space travel, and I've given you guys a few days to recover from that. But now it's time to go back. This classic episode has Chris Paulette and I talking about the Curiosity Project, uh, the Curiosity Project that went to Mars. And it was an incredible mission and one that was really inspiring for us. So we had a great time talking about it. We originally published this episode all the way back on August 29th, 2012. I hope you guys enjoy it. Let's listen in. Today, we are going to talk about stuff what beeps. Yes, stuff what beeps, what we shoot off into space to hit the red planet that is near us. Yeah. Sometimes near us. And well, it's funny because uh, you know, there there is a, another science podcast around here somewhere. <clears throat> yeah, stuff to blow your mind. Yeah, we're not talking about them. No. Because we decided, uh, well, occasionally we talk about the same stuff because we're fascinated by it. And we decided that uh, we didn't care if they talk about this. Yeah, there's so overlap. Neener, neener. There's yeah. overlap because we wanted to talk about the Mars rover. Yes, and, and specifically we're talking about the Curiosity rover, which successfully touched down on the surface of Mars despite the fact that the way of delivering said rover to the surface of Mars was... I think the scientific term is absolutely freaking crazy. I was going to say nuts, but that'll work. Uh, yeah, that's that's the short version of yeah. the full scientific term. Um, yeah, and <laughs> we want to talk about why is it such a big deal? Why is it so hard to get to Mars? And sort of talk about some of the historical missions that led up to Curiosity, as well as the Curiosity mission itself. So... Um, do you let's say that uh, let's say we're talking about the success failure rate of missions to Mars? Yeah, um, depending. It's up, not pleasant to <laughs> talk about. Depending upon how you define success or failure, mm-hmm. uh, one of the more common statistics I've seen or, or figures I've seen is that twenty-three out of thirty-eight missions sent to Mars failed in some way. Yeah. All right. Uh, which gives it a pretty dismal success rate. Are you are you speaking of all missions to Mars? All missions to Mars. So anybody who's ever shot something at the red planet? Anyone. Anyone on Earth. Okay, we, just, we just, can't, just pointing that out. We can't really talk about anyone from outside of Earth. We don't know. Good point. But Good. I meant not United States. Of course, we are located in the United States. And yes. I, I just wanted to point out yes. that you're not talking, you're talking Earthlings. The United States success failure rate is better. It's 13 successes out of 18 tries prior to Curiosity. I, I think it is uh, it is important to point out, too, that the United States has been later to the let's throw stuff at the Red Planet party. <laughs> and so maybe right. part of the failures of the Soviet Union is, well, part of them is due to the fact that the Soviet Union is no more. But when they were, were very active at this, they were maybe not so good at it. They were the and they'd only probably one, be better at it now. They were the only ones doing it at the time. Yes, they were. So you might say, well, why is the why is the success rate so low? Well, Mars is hard. It's it's hard to get to. And and here's You mean the moon might be a little closer? Yeah, let's I'll, I'll give you some figures here. So the average distance between Earth and the moon is about 238,900 miles or 384,400 kilometers. That's about how far it is from Earth to the moon. And it takes a few days for us to send something to go land on the moon. So, for example, astronauts aboard an Apollo capsule take a few days to get there and uh, to get there and a few more days to get back. Um, But that's that's doable. We we did do it. So clearly it's doable. It's a vacation. Getting someone to Mars, getting anything to Mars takes a lot more time. Now. Part of that is because the distance between Earth and Mars is not constant. And the reason for that is that, you know, both planets are uh, going around the sun, right? But they're going at different speeds and their orbits are different sizes. So there are times when Earth and Mars are aligned and they are uh, 
uh, about as close as they possibly can be. And there are other times where Earth is on one side of the sun and Mars is on the other side of the sun, and they're about as far apart as they possibly can be. So the distance varies dramatically. Uh, at the closest, Earth and Mars are about 33,900,000 miles apart, or 54,600,000 kilometers. So to compare again to the moon, the moon was 238,900 miles away, Mars 33,900,000 miles away. So that's not a day trip. Way further. And that's at its closest. At its furthest away, Mars is about 249,160,000 miles away or 401 million kilometers away. So if you're going to make a mission to Mars of any kind, um, then you need to do a lot of thinking about it and, and planning beforehand because you need to decide, okay, what, what are we going to send there? We're going to send a rover. Yeah. Um, and how, how much is that going to weigh? Well, it's going to weigh about this much. How much, you know, rocketude do we need to throw at it? Right. Okay. So you got your, you got your rocketude and your, gotcha. uh, this just makes me think like some sort of 1980s side scrolling video game. Rocketude. I'm going to write that. Okay. Um, and your rover, you know what it, you know what you want it to do. You know how to get it there. Uh, you start having to think about all sorts of other stuff. Okay, well, so how much gravity uh, does Mars have? How much difference in the weight is there going to be once this this rover gets there? How are you know how much atmospheric interference is going to be there? Okay, so you're going to have to plan how long it's going to take for you to shoot this thing into space. And get to Mars and how it's going to stop when it gets there. Oh, and then you have to take into account, if you know roughly how long it's going to take, where are the two planets going to be? Yeah, you have to figure out when you launch. work backwards from there and go, okay, they're going to be at their closest here, so we have to launch it then to make that happen. Technically, you even have to launch it before then because you have to do what's called a transfer orbit. Uh Uh-huh. So so by the – let's say say we've got to the point – by the way, it takes about two years for Earth and Mars to line up so that they are at their closest. And then it'll take another two years before they are at that same position relative to one another. So there's a two-year gap between when uh, you're closest and when you're not. And close is important because that determines how much fuel you're going to need to get whatever it is you're sending to Mars there. Yeah. And fuel is heavy uh-huh. because we depend on – you know. Uh, these these chemical fuels that are you know these solid chemical fuels that that weigh a lot they give off a lot of energy and they are about as efficient as we possibly can be with chemical uh, uh, fuel mm-hmm. but um, yeah their weight factors into the whole calculation so you want to use as as little fuel as possible to get your your spacecraft to Mars Mm -hmm. uh, to be as efficient as you possibly can be. This is also why it's really difficult to to talk about a manned mission to Mars. I'll get to that in a second. But um, so when you – when Earth and Mars are closest together, if you were to launch at that point, well – you know, you can't just point the rocket at Mars where Mars is right now because it is not going to be there by the time the the spacecraft would have made its way to that point. You know, both planets are still moving around the sun. So your spacecraft would be going to where Mars used to be, not to where Mars is going to be. So you actually right. have to plan it out ahead of time to make sure you are being as economic as possible with your fuel use. So yeah, to paraphrase the great one, you have to launch the rocket at where the planet's going to be. Yeah, yeah, you got to shoot for where it will be, not for where it is. And so I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, so essentially, there is a lot of thought that has to go into this before wow, you even there. before you even build the rocket, before yeah. you even build the mm-hmm. rover. You really have to think about what you need to do to make it happen. And so, you know, when you shoot something at the moon. The factors are lessened somewhat by the distance and and the the proximity of the moon. You know where you the the orbit and all those things are 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 lesser. And the the more complex uh, a project gets, you know, the more factors you have to deal with, and it's just that that's going to make it more difficult to reach Mars than it is to reach the moon. And if you were trying to reach Pluto, for example, 
the factors get even more difficult. I mean, uh-huh. Pluto's got such an odd orbit anyway. So, I mean, th- this is, this is, you know, this isn't rockets. Oh, no, 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 wait, it, 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 it actually is. is rocket science. It is rocket science. Yeah, so is, it's, it's complex. It's not brain surgery. Um, <laughs> so the, yeah, so it takes about, it takes about between seven and eight months mm-hmm. to get from Earth to Mars using the the methods that we have available to us today. Mm-hmm. There are scientists who have suggested that we look into using a nuclear-powered propulsion system in order to get from Earth to Mars, which would significantly reduce the weight of your vehicle because you wouldn't have to have so much chemical fuel aboard. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then there are other problems, of course, with the idea of a nuclear propulsion system, especially if you're going to use some sort of chemical propulsion to get you off the the surface of the Earth into low Earth orbit before you engage the nuclear propulsion system. Having explosives next to a nuclear device makes people nervous. I don't um, know why. There's also the possibility that people have said of, of, of uh, building the spacecraft in low Earth orbit. So you would have space missions that would go out, build this craft in low Earth orbit, and then you solve the problem of having to escape Earth's gravity. Uh, you engage the nuclear propulsion system then, and that also gets around it. At any rate, so you've got about seven to eight months to get to Mars, depending on, you know, exactly what you're sending there and and the timing involved uh this is and here's the reason why a manned mission to mars would be really really difficult let's say that we sent let's say we we built the spacecraft that that is capable of carrying uh, a party of about six astronauts to mars that tends to be about the number of crew members that is considered ideal. Uh, this comes from NASA, and NASA says that ideal number is somewhat reached by you want to have enough of a mix of people so that uh, you can balance out any personality issues. Uh, you also want to have enough so that you can represent multiple nationalities because you have to have a lot of partnerships with other countries in order for these uh, projects to come through. So there's a political element to it as well. Um, so you, let's say we've built the, the ship that could hold six people uh, that can hold all the supplies they would need to get to Mars and back. It would still take 32 months from the time you launch to the time you touch down back on Earth to do a Mars mission. And the reason for that is that because it takes seven to eight months, you know, assuming that you're going for pure fuel economy, again, to limit the weight of your spacecraft. Mm-hmm. Take seven to eight months for you to get to Mars. By the time you land on Mars, the Mars and the Earth are no longer in that ideal situation where you can easily get from one to the other. In fact, at that point, by the time the Curiosity uh, rover landed on the surface of Mars, Mars was further away from the Earth than the Earth was to the Sun. So, by the time you land, the Earth is further away from you than the Sun would be if you were still on Earth. Mm-hmm. So you have to wait for that timing to be right again so that you can launch from Mars and get back to Earth, that takes almost two years. So from the time you leave to the time you get back, 32 months pass. So that's a, that's a very long mission. And that, during that whole time, you would also have to be able to, to not only provide all the resources your astronauts would need to stay alive on the surface of Mars, which not a very friendly planet for us. It's not, um, not too terribly accommodating. It, it's not the worst but it's not it's not the best either. You would also have to figure out how to protect them from things like radiation. The longer you're out in space, the more likely you are to encounter various forms of radiation that we are protected from here on Earth due to factors like the Earth's atmosphere and its magnetic field. Yeah. So you'd have to figure out how do you protect the astronauts from things like gamma radiation out in space so that they don't turn into the Incredible the Hulk, Incredible Hulk uh, or cosmic rays so they don't come back as the Fantastic Six because there would be two more than the four. Right, right. Um, I, I also thought you were going to point out that there need to be enough uh, people aboard so that when the aliens do start bursting out of them, that you know there's somebody left at the end of yeah, it. Yeah, you have to have that dramatic person at the end so they can come back and tell the story and, and, and blame the corporation yeah. you know, from the uh, documentary Alien. Um, the, <laughs> uh, yeah, so there, there are a lot of factors that make it really, really hard for us to send a manned mission to Mars, which is why the missions that we've sent to Mars so far have been unmanned missions, and uh, even those 
have not had a great success rate. Although, again, the United States success rate is significantly higher than if you were to to think of the entire world, uh, which is mainly the USSR or Soviet Union at the time, um, now would be uh, Russia and the various countries around Russia. Uh, the Japan also has attempted to send missions to Mars, and there was, um, I think, a European mission as well. So the uh, the first attempt to send a, a a a mission to Mars, an unmanned mission to Mars, was in 1960. Uh, by the Soviet Union, and it was called Korabl Four, K O R A B L, and R uh, in the the in R alphabet. <laughs> uh, I don't read Cyrillic, so I couldn't tell you the other version. But um, yeah, that was in 1960. It did not even it didn't reach Earth orbit, so that was a failure early on. It it did not. Um, even make it into low Earth orbit, much less out into Mars. Yeah, I actually saw that one listed as Marsnik. Marsnik? Yes, M-A-R-S-N-I-K. Uh, so I, this is the information I got was from uh, NASA. Okay. So um, I was going from an article on Wired. So yeah, this is this is from NASA. Yeah. So they had two um, actually that went around the same time. Yeah, uh, Karabel four and five, according to NASA, but I'm sure it had different names in the Wired article. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first attempt by the United States was in uh, 1964 with the Mariner 3, um, which was – it was supposed to be a flyby mission. So this is a, 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 a spacecraft that's supposed to pass by Mars and take photos as it goes by. Uh, that one was also a failure. Uh, the, the shroud failed to jettison, so it did not make it to Mars. Uh, but shortly thereafter, the Mariner 4 – was a successful flyby mission, and it returned 21 images of Mars to Earth. So uh, the United States' first attempt was a failure, but the second attempt succeeded. Um, there were a lot of attempts since then. <laughs> uh, some of them, many of them were flybys. Um, uh, some of them were meant to be orbiters. A uh, lot of launch failures, a lot of um, orbits that were obtained, but then the the device failed before it could really uh, retrieve a lot of information. The first success, really, for uh, the the Soviet Union um, was uh, the the Mars Five, which was in 1973, mm-hmm. and uh, that was um, that returned 60 images of the planet, and it uh, but it only lasted nine days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Mars Two actually attempted to uh, put a lander right. On the surface, but uh, not so much with the success. Yeah, it, the orbiter actually arrived into the orbit of Mars, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, the lander did not did not land successfully. Chris and I have more to say about the Curiosity lander over on Mars, but before we get to that, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. One of the challenges, again, uh, that I had read about, especially with the recent coverage on Curiosity, again, recent as of the time we're recording this, um, is that the the atmosphere of Mars uh, is very, very unlike that of Earth. It's very thin. Yes. So, you know, if you think about, uh, for example, the space shuttle coming back in or the uh, the Mercury and Gemini missions, uh, I love doing that because Jonathan winces every time I say Gemini. Yeah. Some of the astronauts called it that, though. Uh, you're using the heat shields and coming in and having the heat shield, you know, burning as it comes through the Earth's atmosphere. Uh, Mars's atmosphere does not act as a uh, a slower downer. Not not as much. It no. does it does slow down the vehicle, but not as much. Yeah, the, I was going to say that. Okay. Well, you Can said finish? you said they you said it wasn't a slower downer. I wanted yeah. to correct. Well, that. not as I was going to say not as much as it does here. Right. And with gravity. Uh, being so different there too, um, it, it is. It, those are, are factors that the uh, the uh, scientists have to take into account. Um, I, if I am not mistaken, you know there have been times when we tried to use a uh, big cushiony bouncy ball to try to protect something, and eh, it didn't work out so well. We, but we have had uh, rovers land using that approach. Um, 
uh, it's an air, airbag approach is really what it is. It's yeah. airbags. Uh, well, yes, the, the atmosphere on Mars is thinner than it is on Earth. And it does not slow entry vehicles down to the same extent as we no. would have here on Earth. No, no. So you have to come up with other ways of slowing your entry vehicle, entry vehicle down uh, if you don't want to go boom on the surface of the planet. Mm-hmm. And there have been a lot of different attempts to do that. So previous attempts involved using parachutes, which can slow you down a little bit, but even then the atmosphere is so thin exactly. that you're going uh, – They, for example, the Curiosity rover uh, deployed the largest supersonic parachute NASA has ever built which weighed, I think, 100 pounds total, uh, that was um, that was able to slow down the vehicle to 200 miles per hour. Uh, and I don't have the kilometers per hour uh, conversion there right in front of me, so I apologize for that. But anyway, even at that speed, there was no way the rover could land and, and maintain integrity. It would have smashed to little tiny pieces. Mm-hmm. So they had to find another way of slowing down. Uh, there are other elements literally, on Mars that make this difficult. Uh, one of the potential things you could do is use rockets to slow down your your entry vehicle, but the closer you get to the surface of the planet, the more those rockets are going to disturb the dust that's on the surface. That dust can cause lots of problems if you have sensitive scientific equipment. Mm-hmm. Uh, this equipment might get gummed up by dust. The dust could damage it so that it's unusable, which means that you might land successfully, but you can't actually retrieve any data because your instruments are fouled by dust. Um, the dust itself could also be corrosive. Uh, so there's some real problems there. So you have to figure out, well, if you can't just use rockets, then you have to find some other balancing uh, feature so that you can lower the the rover itself onto the surface without getting the rockets so close to the surface that they start to disturb the dust. Mm-hmm. About 322 kilometers per hour. 322 kilometers per hour, thank you. So uh, in, in some cases, the way that the rovers we have landed, now we, we've also launched orbiters that just orbit Mars and take uh, scientific measurements from orbit. Yeah. So we've got some of those in orbit already. Um uh, in fact, we've got a couple that we launched not too long ago. We being the United States, um, uh, the the there's the the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, which was launched mm-hmm. in 2005, and uh, it's already returned more than 26 terabits of data about the um, the the planet. Uh, there's also the Odyssey, Mars Odyssey, which was launched in 2001, um, and uh, both of those have contributed a lot to our scientific knowledge. The Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter has aboard it a special camera called the High Resolution Imaging Science Experiment, or HiRISE. And the HiRISE actually caught a great photo of the Curiosity rover as it was landing with the parachute deployed. Oh, yeah. So you can actually see the parachute. You can see the capsule that contained the rover. You can... uh, if you look really carefully, you can even see the heat shield that was jettisoned uh, off the bottom of the the rover. We'll talk more about that whole procedure in just a minute. Um, so one of the things you could do is you use rockets to slow yourself down further from the parachute. So the parachute gets you down to a certain speed. The rockets can slow you down a little bit more. And then as you get closer to the surface, you need to find a way of lowering the rover itself so that uh, y- the rockets don't disturb the dust too much. One way of doing that is to lower the rover, uh, to essentially drop it with all these airbags around it, which cushion the blow when it lands, and then it retrieves the airbags and or, or emerges from the airbags and continues on its mission. Uh, that's how the smaller rovers uh, landed, uh, fr- the smaller ones being things like the Spirit and the Opportunity uh, the Phoenix Lander, things like that used those sort of approaches because um, they were they were small enough where it wasn't that it wasn't as huge a challenge. With the Curiosity rover, you're talking about a one ton vehicle, mm-hmm. and at that size, the size of the airbags you would need are so huge that you would really run the risk of even if everything worked properly, you would run the risk of fouling the drive system of the Curiosity rover because it has to get out of this enormous airbag. Mm -hmm. So that was considered too risky. Another approach is to put uh, uh, these pretty much like stilts, like landing stilts, so that when the the, uh, rockets lower the, the descent 
uh, vehicle down. Mm-hmm. The the stilts touch ground and keep the rockets at an elevation high enough so that they aren't disturbing the dust too much. Mm-hmm. And then the rover can drop down from there. Again, with the Curiosity rover, it was so large and heavy, the stilts would have had to have been way too tall to do this in a way that would have been easy to do. And also it would have really made it difficult to ensure that the Curiosity would be undamaged as it uh, came down. So they had to come up with a different way to get the Curiosity rover onto the surface of Earth. And it was insane. Mm-hmm. A sky crane. A sky crane. Yeah. So that sounds that sounds like some kind of strange, otherworldly company. Yeah. So we'll walk you through how how this unfolded, and it's still incredible to me that this worked. Well, I think, um, and, and I don't mean this in any way to be a slight to the scientists behind this. I think they were a little astonished that yeah. it worked. Well, the 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 reaction that we saw. At the and <laughs> as we learned that the Curiosity had in fact landed successfully, and by the way, by the time we knew that the Curiosity was successful in its landing, mm-hmm. it had been on the surface of Mars for several minutes. Yeah, because again, it, Mars is further away at the point of the Curiosity landing uh, from Earth than the Earth is to the Sun. It takes it takes about eight minutes for light from the Sun to get to Earth. It takes fourteen minutes for electromagnetic communication to get from Mars to the Earth. Talking about slow internet. Now, 14 minutes for that information to get to us. It takes seven minutes from the time the landing capsule enters the Martian atmosphere to the point where Curiosity would touch down. That means there's a seven-minute gap where things have already happened and we do not know what they were. Yes. So uh, the name. Seven minutes of terror. Mm-hmm. Which is, I think, brilliant. There was a wonderful video NASA put out that was very dramatic, almost almost comedically so, because it was like a it was like a thriller movie, right? Mm-hmm. But it was all about the seven minutes of terror, the fact that you have to build a vehicle that's operating autonomously for for you know, you, there's nothing you can do. You can't make any adjustments because. It's going to take 14 minutes for that information to get to you, and then any information you send back, it's going to take 14 minutes for it to get there. Mm-hmm. So by the time you send any sort of information, by the time you react to a changing condition, it doesn't matter. Things have changed too much for that to have any effect. Mm-hmm. So uh, the the capsule enters the Martian atmosphere. There's seven minutes until it touches down, uh, and then seven more minutes before we find out anything about it. The First thing that happens is the atmosphere starts to slow down the capsule. And like we said, it's a thin atmosphere, so it doesn't slow it down that much. It is, however, thick enough to cause lots of heat from friction. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a double whammy for NASA, right? It All the heat that, with none of the brakes? Exactly. All the heat, none of the brakes. So you have to build a device that's capable of withstanding the heat, mm-hmm. but have to make you have to take into account the the fact that the atmosphere is not going to slow it down sufficiently enough for it to make a safe landing. Right. What a headache. So that's already tough. Capsule enters the atmosphere, starts to heat up. It has to have a heat shield to protect mm-hmm. the innards because Electronics don't react well to heat. Said yep. it a billion times, um, not literally. And then <laughs> the once it reaches a certain altitude, uh, it deploys the parachute, which slows down the the uh, the vehicle even more. And so it mm-hmm. started to slow down once it hits the atmosphere. Actually, it takes a little while before it starts to slow down, but it does slow down hitting the atmosphere. The parachute slows it down further. Once it slows down as much as it possibly can with the parachute, it jettisoned the parachute which is important because then it activates rockets. Yes. So if it activated the rockets first, then there's the danger of actually colliding with the parachute and fouling the whole system. Yep. So jettisons the parachute, parachute flies off, and then uh, the rockets make a, uh, a horizontal adjustment so that the descent vehicle is not going to be in the same path as the parachute. Mm-hmm. Uh, it ejects the, or it, it detaches the um, the uh, uh, the heat shield as well. Actually, mm-hmm. I think that even detaches while the parachute's deployed. Uh, and there are sensors on the bottom of the rover which can help guide the whole system so it lands in the best spot. Now they were aiming for the Gale Crater, which is uh, was a, a it's a crater that was created on Mars about three billion years ago with a meteor impact. Hmm. So uh, they wanted to land the rover in there. So the the 
sensors on the bottom of the rover detect where the right landing area is. The rockets position it properly and start the descent, uh, continuing to slow that that descent so that you're not plummeting to the surface. At about 20 meters above the surface of the planet, the rover descends on a, on a set of cables from a crane that's in that descent vehicle. So you've got a crane essentially mounted on rockets, mm-hmm. lowering a one-ton vehicle. Uh, the cables, I think, were about seven meters long, and so it would then the rockets would then slowly allow this entire thing to descend until the wheels of the rover made contact with the Martian soil. Mm-hmm. At that point, the bridles holding the cables to the rover were uh, jettisoned, mm-hmm. and then the, ro- the the descent vehicle with the rockets would then launch itself about 400 meters away to crash on the surface of the planet so that it would not um, cause any problems to the rover. Because mm-hmm. you don't want it to just, you know, like, oh, we've gently set the rover down. Oh, and then our descent vehicle landed on our rover. That's a bummer. That would have been a bad thing. So the, the descent vehicle went about 400 meters away and crash landed. Uh, and the rover was safe on the planet. And we found out about it seven minutes after it happened. And everyone did a little dance. <laughs> and I, cheered and they, jumped and hugged each other. I, I don't think they did a little dance. I think they did a big dance. They did do a big dance. And there are gifts out there that show this that were very, very popular as soon as, I mean, like seconds after the footage hit the internet, there were already memes about it. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, like I said, I think they were a little surprised, but in a, in a positive way. Like they came up with an excellent solution, but without ever, you know, trying it in practice. Um, you know, it, on Mars, they weren't 100% certain, especially with their past success rate, whether it would work for sure or not, or would it deliver the rover in excellent condition, which it did. So they yes. were, they were very, very happy about, about that. And, 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 and it's, it's something that you can't really test here on Earth because yeah. the conditions here on Earth are so different from on Mars that even if you were to build something that works well on, on, here on our planet, you cannot be certain that the same thing is going to apply on Mars because the conditions are too different. Yeah. So, you know, it wasn't just engineered well on paper. It actually, in practice, did did very, very well. Yeah. And there's quite a lot of equipment on on Curiosity as mm-hmm. well. I mean, there are 17 cameras yes. alone. Uh, most, most of those are navigational and hazard cameras, um, but there is a, a mast. Um, yeah, you know what my favorite piece of equipment aboard the Curiosity is? Or do I have to ask? What 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 is your favorite piece of equipment? It's a laser. Uh, of course it is. <sighs> Which uh the laser is used to concentrate a very focused beam of of light on rocks in the Martian soil. And uh they it does this in very, very short bursts, like five nanosecond long bursts. And after about 70 bursts of this high-powered, intense laser, it starts to ablate or evaporate the the rock that mm-hmm. it's focused on. And then what happens is a special camera, actually three different uh, cameras, uh, will get information from – or three different sensors will get information from a telescopic camera that will analyze the plasma this rock gives off. And by analyzing the plasma through uh, spectroscopes – they can determine what chemical elements made up the rock itself. Mm-hmm. So essentially what you're doing is you're burning something looking at – burning is an oversimplification. But you're burning something looking at the fumes it gives off and based upon those, you determine what the stuff is made of. The reason for this is one, so we can learn more about the composition of Mars. But two, also look for things that could be foundational building blocks to support life. Mm-hmm. Now, Curiosity is not looking for evidence of life itself. It is not looking for microscopic life because it doesn't have any equipment aboard the rover itself capable of seeing things at that resolution. So it's not looking for evidence of microscopic life that's currently there on Mars. It's really looking for all the elements that would need to be in place for life to have at least one at one time been supported on Mars. That, however, has not stopped all the other memes yes. uh, that have gone around where there have been pictures uh, circulated from Curiosity. And, of course, uh, these pictures of Curiosity's uh, – from 
Curiosity's point of view across the surface of Mars is it's big and flat. Yeah, However, and dusty. So far, I, the life forms I have seen superimposed over that landscape on uh, social media include Marvin the Martian from mm. uh, <laughs> this Q thirty two space modulator from uh, uh, the Looney Tunes cartoons, uh, the Muppets from uh, that 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 go. Yep, 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 uh-huh, uh-huh. Yep, 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 yep. And I, I did see a, a couple days ago some AT-ATs walking across the surface, so the Empire is apparently there yes. already. Um, very, very what amusing. Those, all-terrain attack transports or something like that? That's what that means? <laughs> yes, yes. So uh, from Star Wars. Yes. Um, Documentary Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but yeah, they, there are several different cameras there. They're taking photos uh, 3D, um, so the James Cameron uh, contingent is there. Yes, uh, black so and white color we've seen photos. The avatars are running around up there. Yep, yep. Um, so basically, they're they're doing all kinds of uh, of imaging and analysis of the planet's surface. Um, and you know, they're it's it's pretty awesome to be able to do this kind of work. Yeah, this is a this is a an evolutionary step from what the previous rovers we've sent up there like Phoenix and, and Spirit and Opportunity mm-hmm. where they were all very much geologic uh, instruments, geological mm-hmm. instruments, really studying the geological formation of Mars and uh, its geological um, features. We have a bit more to say about the Curiosity Project over on Mars, but I'm going to go get myself a Mars bar and you guys can take a quick break and listen to our sponsor. Curiosity is more of like a fully fledged scientific laboratory. Yeah, that is on wheels. Uh, it moves very, very slowly. Uh, it's got, but it's got a lot of sophisticated equipment. Like you said, it has that mast that projects above the the rover itself. It's also mm-hmm. got an arm. Um, you mentioned the ChemCam, yep. which is the laser. Right. Uh, it's got a uh, chemistry and mineralogy uh, experiment or instrument called mm-hmm. ChemIn. They well, remember we talked about uh, the the different parts of the. Uh, the space shuttle group, they love, love, love acronyms. So the yeah. CHEMIN instrument uh, looks at uh, minerals to, to identify whether water could have been there. Right. Uh, then there's the Rover Environmental Mon- Environmental Monitoring Station, or REMS, uh, which will give you the weather report. Yes. It's yeah. not yeah. raining. It's dusty. Again. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, there, there's so much aboard, and... Um, one of the other things I think has been really remarkable about the past few missions to Mars is NASA's ability to communicate this information in a way that is really exciting to people who otherwise might not really have cared that much. Uh, I, the the space exploration history in the uh, in the entire world has really gone through sort of a roller coaster of uh, as far as the public interest is concerned right because mm-hmm. you had the the space race for the moon mm-hmm. which was politically motivated i mean that oh, was yeah. that was really all uh, fueled not literally but metaphorically by the political uh, opposition of the united states and the soviet union mm-hmm. and so uh, once we landed men on the moon and got them back safely, uh, the political uh, motivation to push people out into space really diminished, which is part of the reason why we didn't start immediately looking at Mars as being the next step because a lot of the excitement and enthusiasm and funding had gone away because we already achieved this other amazing and insanely amazing goal of mm-hmm. landing people on the moon. Um then, like, we had the space shuttle era, which started off with incredible interest. I mean, it was this amazing program. But then shuttle mission after shuttle mission, people started to think of it more as something that just happens and less as something amazing and special. Mm-hmm. Because it, it was, you know, it just seemed like, oh, yeah, another shuttle mission is going up, which is it, when you think about it, that's a crazy, crazy thing to just take for granted because the amount of work it takes to get people into space is phenomenal. But it did happen. Uh, once we started sending missions to Mars and have them be a success, you know, there were science fans who really thought it was interesting. But the general public, I don't know that it necessarily caught their attention. I think what really turned things around 
was when NASA started to leverage social media <laughs> and began to use social media to to communicate scientific facts, figures, discoveries to the general public that got people excited. And beyond that, they began to give almost a personality to some of the equipment they sent out. That's that's funny. I don't know uh, if Jonathan heard this this morning. Um, no, I as I was driving uh, to the uh, the train station to come in for this podcast, uh, I was listening to National Public Radio (NPR) here in the United States, and there was an interview um, with Veronica McGregor. Uh, now, Veronica McGregor, she was the person who was in charge of updating a Twitter account for the Phoenix Mars rover, and the Phoenix Mars rover ended up getting an enormous number of fans following it. Mm -hmm. And it was able to, through the Phoenix Twitter feed, uh, NASA was able to communicate a lot of interesting scientific information. But Veronica went a little step further and gave the Phoenix sort of, again, a personality. And I'll never forget. I mean, I remember I followed the Phoenix rover, and it was truly an emotional moment when the second to last tweet that Phoenix sent out, out during its official mission was, it's very unlikely I'll wake up next spring, but if I do, I'll call home. Good luck with your project. And people thought about that, like, there's this little robot mm-hmm. all alone. Mm-hmm. Not really all alone. There were other robots on Mars too, but they were really far away. So more or less, there's this little robot all alone on the surface of this planet, uh, you know, miles and miles and miles away from Earth. And it is doing science for us and it's doing it selflessly and it's about to die because mm-hmm. its solar circuits aren't going to get enough juice to keep it going. And there's, and by the time it comes out of that, that, essentially a Martian winter, for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the time it comes out, it will not be able to reboot its system and it'll be uh, a dead piece of technology. It impacted people. Mm-hmm. I mean, people got teary-eyed over the yeah, idea. Because they, they, yeah, people had, had humanized this inanimate, well, animated but unalive object. You know, it has no actual feelings or personality. But Veronica had really uh, imbued this thing with that kind of sense of purpose and and personality that people identified with. And it made a powerful statement. And I think people connected to the space mission in a way they hadn't in many years. Mm-hmm. And NASA has continued that trend. And uh, uh, the last Twitter post it posted was all in binary. And it spelled out triumph. Aw. Yeah. Making a note here. Huge success. <laughs> well, uh they talked to Veronica McGregor this morning. Uh-huh. She is uh, the social media manager um, and is at it again. There, there's a team of three women who, uh, according to NPR, who, who work on the Curiosity Rover's Twitter account, um, which has, according to this uh, um, Chicago Tribune, I couldn't remember Veronica's last name, so I looked it up, and, and this article posted earlier today, uh, as of right now, more than 800,000 followers. Yeah. Um, Already for curiosity, so they'll be following through the mission. Uh, just in, in case you're curious, uh, according to Veronica McGregor, the uh, the curiosity is a she. It yeah. has a female. She said, according to them, they they sort of talked about it, and they they feel they get this feeling that it's a her or wow. she. So uh, I don't know. You go, girl. It's interesting, but uh, well, I if you, if you put yourself in the shoes of someone who is talking about this, um, you know you. You kind of have to make a personality as you're building your personality. You're like, you know what? I, I think I think it's a woman. But uh, I, I do I do remember re- listening to uh, or watching videos of the engineers talk about the Curiosity, and they referred to the entire vehicle as a she, which I, at the time I didn't think unusual because I like I've, boats, yes, yeah, ships, not boats. Well, some boats. I think of I think of ships. Ships are a she. Oh, or hurricanes. Um, <laughs> the the Enterprise. Yeah, no, the Enterprise, Star Trek. She, that's a she. Well, you, uh, people have talked about the expense of the mission, and I'm sure there were people who are going, "Why on Earth or, or Mars? Do you care if it's a, a, a male or a female rover?" Well, these things personalize it somewhat, and, and they yeah. do make it more accessible to us, and they also get us inspired yes. to to try new things, to find ways to 
uh, grow better crops or cure diseases or launch the next mission to space. They make us want to try something that we haven't been able to do before. And, this, the, and it's valuable. The, the effects that come out of this are across so many different disciplines. Sure. So not only, one, we're learning about Mars. Two, we're learning more about our solar system. Three, we're learning more about the Earth as we learn what things are similar versus dissimilar between Mars and Earth. And and oh, go ahead. Uh, as, four. As I say four, we're inspiring future generations of scientists and engineers mm-hmm. because this is genuinely exciting, and people, little kids, will think that is amazing. Look at what can be accomplished. I want to do that. Yeah. And and five, you're promoting science in general to the general public. And again, you know, promoting science, I think it's an incredibly important thing. It's not the easiest thing in the world to do, especially, you know, some scientists are so focused on their field, they may not be the best at communicating that that passion and enthusiasm to the general public, even though they possess it themselves, they might not be able to communicate it effectively. So bridging that gap is really important so that the public understands why this is important and gets excited. Uh, it also helps with funding. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it might inspire the next private company to try and go into something that they wouldn't have done before. So, yeah, the the this is really a true domino effect, right? I mean, yeah. it's amazing the sort of stuff that can come out of a mission like this that may not even be uh, uh, obvious at first glance. Yep, and eventually we're going to have to get off this rock. Well, yeah. And we should mention also NASA currently only has one other Mars mission planned, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a a launch in 2013 of the Mars Atmosphere and Volatile Evolution. Um, So, uh, or MAVEN is the name of that. And that'll be. Really? They have a a creative acronym for that. I'm I'm stunned. Who would have thunk it? MAVEN's purpose is to study the. Uh, atmosphere of Mars. So again, the rovers we are sending are mostly looking at the composition of the soil and the geological formations that are on Mars and, and to really look at the various layers. It's one of the reasons why we landed uh, the Curiosity in a crater is because it can look at different layers uh, on the surface of Mars and see how it's how it has changed over time. Uh, but this will be more to look at the atmosphere. We do not have any manned missions to Mars planned at least not NASA. Um, and there are other nations in the world that are also planning missions to Mars. NASA has only got the, the one, and then after that, who knows. Um, we don't have any planned missions to Mars. There are some companies I'm not that planning have, one. There are some companies that have talked about it, uh, and some of the plans are kind of insane. But if you really want to hear a, a pretty crazy idea about landing on Mars, my favorite is the the first one that I could come across, the first published um, plan or calculation of what it would take to, to send a manned mission to Mars. And it comes from uh, Werner Magnus Maximilian Freier von Braun, or Werner von Braun, uh, as most people would know, who was a rocket scientist. Uh, rocket scientists during World War II built rockets for the Germans. Uh, after the end of World War II, the United States... Um, essentially took him <laughs> and put him to work for the U.S. rocket program. Uh, it was that's a political story that is fascinating, and you should all write to stuff you missed in history class to talk about that. Actually, that'd be a fast, fascinating podcast. Mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, von Braun first made rockets for the Germans, and then began to make rockets for the United States. And one of the things he thought of back in 1948 was what it would take to send a manned mission to Mars. Uh, it wasn't published till 1952. Uh, it eventually became an appendix in a novel he wrote, which was a fictional account of what that mission would be like. The novel, from what I understand, is not um, terribly good. Uh, it did not publish <laughs> until 2006. But anyway, in his in his version, it was going to be a 10-spacecraft mission where uh, these 10 spacecrafts would carry about 70 crew members total. And the spacecraft would go into orbit around Mars, and then the mission, uh, the, the, the ground mission crews would detach from the orbiting um, spacecraft in winged vehicles that had mm. skis at the bottom of them and would land at the polar 
uh, caps on Mars. The thought being that the, the polar caps would be flat. And so that would be the best place to land. Then they would take Mars crawlers to the equator on Mars, which would take about 80 days, I think, and then build base camp there. And then would come back to Earth uh, when the those orbits would line up properly again. So that was his idea. Um, didn't happen. Uh, <laughs> it was it was an incredibly um, uh, I don't know uh, difficult I, difficult project. I mean, it would have it would have been in, much harder than anything else we have attempted so far. Right. So. But that, that was my favorite of the proposed Martian expeditions, although there are some other ones. There's been uh, – there was one that was more like a, a reality television show, uh, which was a private endeavor. And uh, I won't go into it, but it did sound pretty crazy. So uh, there have been some interesting proposals for trips to Mars. Mostly it looks like uh, for the foreseeable future, it's going to be unmanned missions yeah. from most of the world, unless some – crazy person with lots of money gets behind it and, and, and does what we think is think of as the impossible, which after the Curiosity rover landing, I'm not sure. My, my definition of the impossible needs to be adjusted. <laughs> well, certainly not a mission impossible. That's true. That wraps up this classic episode of Tech Stuff. I hope you guys enjoyed it. It was fun to revisit this. I remember actually following the progress of the Curiosity as it was happening, or really, you know, several minutes after it had happened because of the communications delay between Mars and Earth. And it was absolutely thrilling. I always find anything to do with space and space exploration to be really interesting and exciting, pushing back the boundaries of our ignorance, uh, incredible engineering achievement of getting stuff into space. So I hope you guys enjoyed this classic episode. If you have any suggestions for future topics for Tech Stuff episodes, send me an email. The address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. If you want some of your very own Tech Stuff merchandise, like a Tech Stuff coffee mug, which I have, and trust me, coffee just tastes better in it. You can go check that out at tpublic.com slash techstuff. That's teepublic.com slash techstuff. Or... Drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. I'm happy to hear from you. The handle for both of those is TechStuffHSW. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram. And I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 